Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Naturalist Capitalist. If you're on the East Coast of the United States, I hope you're having a good Thursday morning. My guest is on the other side of the world, but if you're in the same areas, we hope your Thursday is going well, and I hope your day, whatever time it is, wherever you are, is going well. Um, I just wanted to say before we get into the show, I have now linked everything over to Rumble. Siraj Hajmi and I did a Zoom call yesterday and he set me up on how to do everything. So I'm just going to show on the screen. This is my Rumble channel. It's uh, it's updating everything that I've ever uploaded to YouTube. It's processing everything and switching it over right now. It's got over 100 of my, 100 of my videos over there so far. So if you hate YouTube or you don't like Odyssey or, you know, you just love Rumble or whatever, or if you just want to add it in case I get banned off of something else, go over to Rumble, Naturalist Capitalist. I am there. I am going to drop a link in the live chat to my Rumble channel and you can go subscribe to me there. And then also linked in the description, I have Rumble if you're listening to this on um, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever, or if you're watching it on Odyssey, just go down into the description. You'll see the link to Rumble. Follow me there. And uh, we'll see how that goes. I'm, you know, I'm always getting banned off of something. So might as well have uh, multiple options ready to go. Um, anyways, today I've got a great guest. Uh, I watched her on David Iglesias's show and she's, uh, very active on Instagram, posting all sorts of really informative things about foreign policy, especially surrounding Israel, Palestine or Yemen. She is Quinn Driggs. How are you doing today, Quinn? Hi, I'm good. All right. That was well, the first awesome. time I watched your intro. It's super oh, good. Yeah? <laughs> thank you yeah that's uh dan smott's work he's very talented he can make yeah, me look a lot so, more actually. impressive than i am so i, I like that <laughs> <laughs> so uh why don't you start by just telling us about yourself like what is it you do and what craziness have you been through for the last several years of your life what what crazy turn did you make okay yeah um so I'm Quinn. I'm from Utah, Idaho, um, kind of all over though. I was born in Vegas. We moved around a lot. So, um, and I am new to the Libertarian Party. <laughs> so that's probably one of the bigger changes I've made in like the last two years. Um, but basically kind of my story and what I've been doing right now. So currently I'm really just trying to build up my Instagram and educate people on U.S. military intervention you know, be an anti-war voice. And I've been writing at based-politics.com, probably know who they are. Um, and so I just do like an article a month and I just focus on foreign policy stuff. And then I'll probably launch a podcast at some point. My focus is always though, war, foreign policy, and specifically the Middle East. So that's where I would say my area of expertise is mostly at this time of my life, you know, I'm still learning a lot. Um, but kind of my story, and I think you said at the beginning, I live in a different country, or I live across the world. So I live in Jordan, in Amman, in the Middle East. And how I got here is, I mean, long story short, when I was 15, I got really, really obsessed with the Middle East for some reason. <laughs> I've always been interested in like politics, things like that. I grew up conservative. And I've also always been really interested in like theology because I grew up religious as well. And that's a big part of my life. So I started learning a little bit about Islam and that really fascinated me because I had always thought that Islam was like the furthest possible thing from my own religion as a Christian. And I really just didn't know literally anything about it. I'd never met a Muslim before. I'm from Idaho. I'm pretty sure there's nobody there that's Muslim. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I had never been taught about anything along those lines in school. My high school education and middle school education was just a complete disaster. Everything I know, I don't know from school. Um, and so, yeah, I came across like an essay or something like that about Islam. And it really fascinated me because I didn't know all of the um, roots that it had to Abraham and how it really was a sister religion of Christianity. And I'm specifically a Mormon Christian. And so specifically for Mormonism and Islam, 
I would say they're probably the most similar religions in the world out of any other religion. It's pretty crazy, the doctrinal connections and things like that. So that just really was interesting to me. And it kind of bothered me a little bit too, because I felt like everything I had been taught or heard or overheard was really misrepresentative and wrong. And really the only thing that, you know, you know about Islam is like what you hear on the news and you think it's just all about like extremism. And you don't even think about the fact that literally a billion people in the world are a part of this religion, right? That's a lot of people. It's not a fringe extreme thing. And so that kind of set me on a path where I wanted to learn more about Islam. And then that kind of led me down a path to learn about um, foreign policy in the Middle East, led me down the path to learn more about wars. And, you know, my brothers went to, or my brother went to the Air Force Academy. He's like an Air Force pilot. My grandpa was in the Navy. My other grandpa was in the Navy. And my family is like, you know, super all about the military. And I think that's okay, right? I'm very pro-troop as well. Um, but it was really, uh, there was a lot of cognitive dissonance involved for me. I was going down this path when I was like very young, um, where I was starting to learn about the Middle East and the wars. And I just felt like the things that I was reading really weren't adding up with the things that I was being taught or told, especially like in my home or like the politics I was listening to. I used to be like the most avid Ben Shapiro listener on the planet, like literally every day was Ben mm -hmm. Shapiro since I was like 16. And then my parents are big Fox News people and um, stuff like that. And so, yeah, it was, it's really interesting. And I'm really grateful actually that this was my journey because I didn't come from a place where I already had these um, preconceived notions about like how the military um, isn't all what we make it up to be. There's this entire military industrial complex that the wars that we've been involved in are all based on lies and that basically every single war we've almost ever been in is unnecessary. I actually came to that conclusion just by reading with an open mind about the Middle East. And then I started to learn all these different things that weren't adding up. And it was through that that I eventually, you know, found people like Dave Smith and people like Scott Horton, who mostly, you know, really changed, honestly, my whole life. Um, and then from there, like I was able to dive into all the things I wanted to dive into and, you know, go to the correct resources and books and things like that to really learn. So, so yeah, um, within all of that, I went to school for a year, studied Arabic in the Middle East, um, dropped out. <laughs> I am not a person made for school, I don't think. But um, so I dropped out, moved to Italy, and then I decided, you know what, I just really want to have like some hands-on experience and I'm just going to move to the Middle East myself. So that was when I was 19 when I decided, and then I moved there when I was 20. So it was summer 2019. Um, and I came here <laughs> and I got an apartment and I studied Arabic for a couple months, but I was just not loving learning a new language. Um, and so from there, I ended up getting an internship and I did an internship here. Um, and then I met my boyfriend now who is Jordanian Palestinian. And he's really the one that introduced me to the Palestinian plight and that whole conflict. Because even up until this point in 2019, I still hadn't found my Dave Smiths. I still hadn't found my Scott Horns. I was just living here. And that was another huge thing that obviously, you know, led me down this path of understanding things from a different perspective and in a different way because I lived here and I got to actually know what it's like here and be surrounded by this religion and this culture and this language and these people. And so I lived here about nine months, COVID happened, and then we just moved back um, in April and I'll be here, I think, for a while. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's quite a story. Um, I know. Cool. It's very detailed. <laughs> um, it's funny that you say just honest reading is what led you to realize that the military isn't what we, you know, chalk it up to be or, or history of militarism. I remember when I don't remember how old I was, actually, I was probably 14 or something. Have you ever seen the movie Tora, Tora, Tora? It's about the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. It's from no. like the... 70s or 60s or something the movie but it's the most historically accurate account of how that attack all unfolded and i remember watching it as a kid and just being like so 
we wanted this to happen right like this this we kind of mm -hmm. left the door open for this to take place um yeah. it's just funny like if you get an accurate account of how things transpire that it's pretty obvious that a lot of the things we're taught in school are even if they're true they're usually presented in a way that is designed to give us a different reaction than exactly. what it, it's it, like, it's like the facts in a certain to a certain extent mm -hmm. but it's it's very skewed it's very skewed yeah i think michael malice says uh factual but not honest or something like that so like yeah. the facts are true they're not gonna necessarily lie about the dates and stuff but they will yeah. present it in a way that makes you know it isn't a very uh isn't a very fair representation of what's actually going on um yeah. So yeah, you've you've done a great Twitter or not Twitter thread, but uh, Instagram thread about the history of Zionism and Palestine and Israel. And I've read through it; it's very good. Um, and I, I love the fact that you just like put it in an Instagram package like that, where people can read through it in five minutes and kind of get a basic understanding. But why don't you just kind of walk us through it? Um, you know, I know people have heard this from ryan or scott or whatever on my show before but why don't you give us your take on um you know how this all started and what it's turned into and what is inaccurate about what the western media or what right. you know u.s history books teach us how did this start right. and what does it become okay cool yeah i i love to put together i call them simplified series just for like the most average joe person to be able to read and understand things in a different light so i do that with everything if you ever want to check out my page but um but yeah so with israel palestine i mean my like i said my background uh, as a ben shapiro listener um i i feel like everything that we hear in the media there's never context, right? And I think this is always the issue, like no matter what we're talking about, there's never ever historical context. And I think especially when it comes to Israel-Palestine, um, you know, and you want to talk about this conflict and there's this violence and Palestinians are terrorists and yada, yada, yada. Um, no one ever talks about the origins of Zionism, like you said, and the creation of the state of Israel. And I feel like you absolutely can't even begin to understand what's currently happening in the West Bank and Gaza and all of these different areas if you don't even understand the origins of this entire, what I would call, colonialist project. And I remember I listened to an episode of your show with Abby Martin, who I think is awesome. Mm -hmm. And I love that you had her on. And I think what she said is like perfect. She said, like, we call it this really complicated conflict when it's really quite simple. And really what it comes down to is that Israel was created on top of another country. And it really is that simple. Everything that comes after might be a little muddled and completed and, and, and a little complicated just because you have to keep track of all the places that Israel conquered <laughs> and at what time. And the map just starts to get really weird and there's lots of holes in the map and they have to keep track of like what rules happen in certain areas like Gaza is so different than the West Bank and West Bank is so different from East Jerusalem and East Jerusalem is so different different from the 1948 areas where Palestinian lives like that's where it gets complicated sure but the issue itself is not complicated at all and that's what I tried to lay out in that series so um you know basically I start off with letting everyone know like the reason that we should care about this as Americans, you know, and as libertarians is that we give Israel $3.8 billion in military aid every single year. We've done that for a long, long time. Um, and they used to be, I think, the largest recipient of U.S. military aid before all the Ukraine stuff happened. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think Taiwan is really getting up there as well. So, so yeah, um, I think, I mean, we all know that U.S. and Israel have been very intertwined. Um, and a lot of that is because there was an entire propaganda campaign that happened um, in the early, like, 50s, 60s, where they tried to paint Israel as, um, you know, like the coming together of Israel, which is like a really big Christian thing, right? So they really wanted to connect with Christians in the U.S. or connect with Christians in the West. So they played out a whole big thing about how like this is meant to happen. So a lot of Christians think that like the creation of Israel is like very biblical and it's supposed to happen in preparation for the coming of Christ. Lots of crazy stuff that I don't 
understand how people believe. But anyways, um, the series, I talk about um, first just like the ideology of Zionism, right? Which the ideology of Zionism is the creation of an exclusively Jewish state. And this was an ideology that was founded by a man named Theodore Herzl. And he was an atheist and he's Austrian as well. But I think it's really, really important to point out that he is an atheist, especially because there is all these religious connotations and narratives that go along with the state of Israel that are just completely inaccurate um, and just part of a very big propaganda campaign to, like I said, um, get in touch with Christians so and get support from Christians. So this is happening 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. And during this time, of course, there's a lot of anti-Semitism that's happening in the U.S. and Russia and Europe. And their solution was basically that they wanted to create an exclusively Jewish state. And what's I think so crazy as well is they were first looking at plots of land in Argentina and Uganda. So the idea that this whole thing is about them going back to their promised land where they're indigenous to is right flat on its face false just from that right? Like they didn't necessarily care about going back to Israel. They just wanted a, an exclusively Jewish state. And I'm sure that in their minds, you know, maybe that would have been like the perfect option maybe to go back to Israel, right? Or what was then called Palestine. Um, but they also looked at Uganda and Argentina. I think that's just really important to know. Um, so yeah, during this time, you know, um, this was a very fringe ideology within the Jewish community. And whether people were secular Jews or religious Jews, they thought that the idea of, you know, having a mass exodus of Jews into one state really actually fulfills fulfills the wants of the anti-Semites because you're just getting rid of all these Jewish people from your countries. Um, and they felt like they should be fighting anti-Semitism in the country that they were born, you know, that's mm. their nationhood, that's their ethnicity, that's where they're from, that's where their roots are, that's where their ancestry is from. Um, so this, you know, gains more popularity as anti-Semitism grows as well. During this time, what we know as Israel today, that, you know, strip of land was actually basically Ottoman Palestine. So it was called Ottoman Palestine because it's under the Ottoman Empire. And this is something I tried to lay out in my series too, because I know that like the people in my life or my friends or my family, like don't even know what World War One was about. Right. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. They don't even like understand like that there was this Ottoman Empire and that's what we defeated in World War One, And that, you know, the borders of Jordan and Iraq and Syria and Lebanon haven't always been there, by the way, like those are new. So I kind of just tried to break that down in my series, you know, letting people know, like, this is all the territory of the Ottoman Empire. There's no borders yet. But within this territory, there is 100% distinct cultures and distinct identities that are happening and distinct dialogues and things like that, right? So the Palestinian culture is extremely, extremely, I would say, like, strong and potent. Like, even in the world of Arabs, like, there is something about Palestinians that really set them apart from other Arabs. And I think that's just a really fascinating thing too. Um, just with their um, like cooking and things like that, the things that, you know, they basically invented hummus and they have like a lot of other things that really people take from that Palestinian culture. Um, and during this time as well in Ottoman Palestine, Jerusalem, is yes, not only is it like the third holiest site for Muslims, which is a huge deal because um, Palestinians were mostly um, Muslim at that time, uh, but it's a very big hub for culture and art and all these things. And if you're an intellectual in the Middle East, you're actually gonna be traveling to Jerusalem all of the time. Um, so there is a distinct identity and a distinct culture in this area, just as there is in all of the other areas, you know, within the Middle East. Um, so I'm trying to think where I want to go next. Um, well, I've got a, uh, I just got a yeah, comment yeah. that, um, yeah. you know, so many people think this is just an ancient holy war, uh, you know, yes. between Muslims and Jews and Christians. And I mean, it's, I, I made a post on Instagram about this recently, how, 
you know, right now in uh, Ukraine, you've got a Jewish president who is working with neo-Nazi factions of his military. And so many people just go, what? Like, how is that? That doesn't make any sense because yeah. they think everything is about race. Everything is about religion where it's right. not true. Political ideology always trumps all of those things. Those I mean, political yeah. power comes first. You have exactly. nowadays like a Christian country, the United States, a Jewish country, Israel, and a Muslim country, Saudi Arabia, all allied basically against another Muslim country, Iran. Yes. And exactly. to so many Americans, all the Muslims are just towel heads who want us all dead. And yeah. Israel's our We're only bastion of freedom. You know, they, they yeah. don't have any, like any understanding of any of this at all. Yeah, I think that's a perfect, perfect, perfect way to put it. Um, and that's a good segue into just saying that, you know, in Ottoman Palestine, there's Muslims, Christians, and Jews, all Arab, you know, living together in, in relative harmony for literally thousands of years. And I think the crazy part about this as well is like this idea that today's Israelis are indigenous to the land and should, you know, be able to return to that land literally makes no sense to me because the concept of Israel in the Bible, first of all, is mostly symbolic. Mm -hmm. Israel isn't necessarily a place. It's an idea. Right. <laughs> um, and if you're Christian, you probably understand that. So that's like my first thing. And maybe that's just my own interpretation within my, my own religion. But on top of that, Israel, the place, I guess, in the Bible was destroyed 600 years before Christ. Right. And, you know, we can have your own debates on whether like the Bible actually happened or is it all symbolic? And I'm saying that as a believing Christian, mm -hmm. um, as far as the Old Testament goes. But yeah, so there's all that religious stuff that gets mixed in it. And it's really just you can pick that apart in like five seconds just from knowing these simple facts. And you look at Palestinian ancestry and they literally have roots in the land. Their ancestors are literally from the land you know, going back a thousand, two thousand years. So um, I think that's also important to, to point out. So yeah, um, basically the Zionist ideology just became like a political movement and it be kind of intertwined itself with an imperialist and colonialist movement. I think this is something else that I just try and remind people of. It's like during the 1900s, like the early 1900s, imperialism was still a very big thing. Like just go watch the crown. Like Great Britain was the empire. That mm -hmm. was the power of the time. And imperialism wasn't like a bad thing yet. It wasn't a bad thing, I feel like, until after basically World War II. And so we kind of just like reframed it. And they will openly say that this was an imperialist project. I mean, that's what the entire project was for the whole Middle East after World War I. Um, and that's why, you know, you had the Sykes-Pickett Agreement, which is you know, where they drew the borders of Iraq and Lebanon and Jordan, all these places. And they were deciding who was going to be the leaders. And, you know, the French controlled some territory and the British controlled some territory. And so I also just try to remind people, like, to say that this is a colonialist project isn't far out there. This is just literally factually what it was. This is a time when colonialism and imperialism were still a thing and still very prominent and not um, seen as negative, right? So yeah, um, I'm trying to think like where else I should go if you want me to just go through the whole series. Like, Well, let's just talk, let's just, uh, let's say like, you know, World War II happens, the Holocaust happens. Um, and obviously there's a lot of, uh, there, there was a lot of aggression against Jewish people in Europe during yes. World War II. There's no doubt about that. Um, but then after World War II, we decide to expel 750,000 Palestinians and just right. place Israel on top of them. Why don't we just get into that a little bit, like how okay, that perfect. all took place? Yeah. So that's another thing I always like to point out, too, is that it's not that Israel was created like during this World War II time. This was all happening years, decades sure. before then. You know, and obviously there's going to be an influx of Jews um, escaping and going to Israel during this time as well. But that had already been happening for a decade or so, or two decades, even before World War II happened. But of course, yeah, then in um, 
1949 is officially when they created the state of Israel, but 1947, 1948, it was already determined that that was going to happen. And then we have, you know, the 1948 war, which is where um, obviously these people are upset that Western powers have just decided without any input, discussion, consent, literally nothing, literally not even a discussion with any Palestinian leader or anything like that. And these aren't just, I think that another thing that bothers me is just like this idea that they're like barbaric or, or savages or, or not modern. It's just so inaccurate. These are people are also intellectuals. This is like a hub of intellectuality at the time. Um, and the fact that no one was taken seriously enough to even have a discussion just goes to show, you know, what this really was all about. So a war breaks out and um, there's just massive, massive massacres um, across across Palestine. And basically um, Zionist militias or Israeli militias, there's kind of separate militias. There's like the official Israeli militia, which is the Hagen, and then there's the Irgun and like the Zionist militias that are kind of like paramilitaries, I would say. Um, They're all trained by the British, all armed and weaponized by the British. And um, they went on to do, like I said, uh, multiple uh, tens of massacres. Um, and they purposely, they had a, a plan called Plan de Let, where they purposefully uh, targeted the most pac pacifist um, villages, passive villages. So like the most peaceful villages. Um, and they did this because they wanted Palestinians to flee on their own. Mm. And, you know, this is within the quotes of Zionists. You know, they, you can find a thousand different quotes. I have some in the series about how they talk about like, we can't have a Jewish state with Arabs here. Like we need to actually expel the Arabs. We don't want any Arabs here. That's going to be a problem, especially demographically, that's going to be an issue. Um, and so they wanted to expel the Arabs. And this was honestly a really smart way to do it because they wanted them to be able to flee on their own. And that way, you know, if international attention came on this issue, they could say they fled voluntarily. Right. Right. And so, yeah, they expel 800,000 Palestinians um, before this, even decades before there was tens of thousands of refugees already. Um, and these massacres were big, big catalyst for this. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think, I feel like I want to share, uh, I don't know. I mean, they all kind of come together, but we're talking about like executions, mass rape, you know, killing men, women, children, mass graves, um, people holding up white flags and them still machine gunning them down, um, bulldozing their bodies, blowing up mosques, like really, really horrific stuff, really big, big crimes that you absolutely never hear about. And these are things too, if you read Goliath by Max Blumenthal, really great book. Um, as well as 1949, The First Israelis by Tom Segev. Both authors are Jewish. Um, Tom Segev is an Israeli historian. Talk about how all this type of stuff is not in Israeli history books. In fact, mm -hmm. you're not allowed to talk about the Nakba or the catastrophe, which is what I'm referring to, where they expelled these people and they had these massacres. Um, you're not allowed to talk about that in school in Israel. Um, and I just think that's that's crazy as well. We talk about Israel as this like, democratic state, yada, yada, yada. It is so authoritarian. It's insane. First of all, it's completely socialist. It is a 100% socialist state. And they regulate what you can talk about in school. They regulate what you can talk about in the media. If you're a journalist and you are Israeli and you are, you are, you know, putting anything out that's controversial or that's anti the Israeli military or anti IDF, the Israeli defense forces, you can have your citizenship stripped away from you. You can easily be put in jail. If you're protesting anything that has to do with Palestine, you can easily be put in jail. Um, so the idea that it's a democratic state is, is really, really false as well. Um, so yeah, yeah I, I, think, I think more. another point that a lot of people miss is that the people who were founding Israel wow. did not really care about Jews, you know, as much. It, it wasn't as much yes. about protecting Jews as people want to think. Uh, yeah. Just if people don't know about the Patria disaster, uh, it was a ship full of Jews that had escaped Germany. They had escaped Hitler's Germany in 1940, and they were being 
moved from Palestine. I forget where they were going. They were going somewhere else because they didn't have clearance to enter Palestine. And Haganau, a Jewish terrorist organization out of Palestine, a Zionist uh, terrorist organization, they bombed the ship and killed over 100 Jews on the ship. And you have other, like, they worked with the Nazis to export Jews out of Germany to Palestine. I mean, these guys don't care about protecting Jews, protecting their rights, protecting yes. their lives. It's just a complete lie. Yeah, exactly. And and that's another thing I put in my series is um, about a Zion, it's called the Zionist Underground. It's also a, a terrorist organization for Israel who, you know, during this time, they were trying to get as many Jews into Israel for demographic purposes, not for safety, right. um, you know, or protection. It's, it's strictly for demographic purposes. They needed Jews to want to come to the Middle East. They, they needed them to want to settle there. Um, and that's why they have all these incentives for Jews to come, like, you know, socialist programs where everything's free and things like that. Um, but one of the things that they did, especially, you know, in the Middle East, there was definitely a wave like of anti-Semitism across the Middle East after all this had happened, of course. Um, and so a lot of Jews, Arab Jews were fleeing to, to Israel. But in Iraq, um, they did a lot of different like secret bombings and, you know, um, attacks on like synagogues and other Jewish sites for Jewish Iraqis. Um, and it was Zionists and Jews who were doing that uh, to try and, you know, get them obviously to come to Israel. And I just think like that alone just goes to show you exactly what their agenda was. Um, and it certainly wasn't about protecting or saving uh, Jewish people. Yeah, 100 percent. So, um, I mean, we could go on about this stuff forever, but I want to get yeah. into kind of the more modern era and how Israel has really influenced our foreign policy in the Middle East. And a, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of people think it just has to do with Israel-Palestine, but it doesn't. It has to do with Iraq. It has to do with Syria. It has to do with a whole bunch of different countries. Uh, Project for New American Century, which was written in the 90s, and the Clean mm -hmm. Break Strategy, which I think was also written in the 90s, are both outlining why we have to fight the Iraq war to create a new realm that favors Israel. And it's about is right. it's not about American oil companies making out. It's about Israeli com oil companies making big bucks. I was wondering if you could explain that a little bit. So like from let's say starting in the 90s forward, how um, or actually, let, let, you know, this weekend is going to be 9-11. So uh, could you tell us about the Kana massacre? Because that was one of the that was one of the biggest things that um, motivated Mohammed Atta to join Al-Qaeda and carry out the September 11th attacks. Right. So there's, you know, the Israel's involvement in like the Lebanese war, Israel's war with Lebanon. The Qana massacre is when um, Israel bombed basically like a shelter. Um, I think it was a UN shelter, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah. All of civilians. And it was like over a hundred. I can't, I'm sorry. I don't know the numbers. Um, like 185, I want to say somewhere yeah. around there civilians um that were killed um and this type of stuff happens i feel like more often than not that israel is killing innocent people or even killing innocent americans um and you're just not gonna hear about it it's gonna be swept under the rug immediately but you know support for israel overall is one of the main reasons that people you know joined al-qaeda or became extremists and this is a really big issue for Arabs. And I feel like it's actually gotten less so recently with like more of the dictatorships, you know, like we know there's the Abraham Accords that just happened. So Israel's regulated their, um, their relationship with uh, UAE and things like that. And even Saudi Arabia haven't fully, you know, had a relationship with Israel to that extent. But you know, they're leaning more towards in that direction. Um, so it's actually kind of unfortunate to see the way that things are just um, becoming becoming more mainstream and people are more accepting of just Israeli power because they want in on that power. Um, but but yeah, opposition to Israel is is a major thing um, that obviously incentivized people to become extremists and you know um, become interested in Osama bin Laden's. Um, world and his whatever principles and things like that um 
I wanted to say something else too. I think a big thing, obviously right now, I would say obviously the biggest thing is Iran, right? Um, and it's funny because Israel was uh, really, really big allies with Iran, especially during the Iran-Iraq war, while right. we were allies with Iraq during that time. We're always switching allies. That's the other thing I don't think people understand yeah. too. We're always going on and off with people. Um, so my thing that I always try and explain to is, um, and I think this is something I'd like to share. So I feel like Israeli, like the thing that unites Israelis is this idea of an outside threat. And when it comes to domestic Israeli politics, you know, there's a lot of other things that they focus on, but there's a lot of emphasis on an outside threat. And, you know, when they can't necessarily pin it on Palestinians, and that's because that's what they're, that's literally what their state was created on. Their state was created on this idea of a threat from the outside of people wanting to kill us. And it's difficult sometimes to talk about these things. I like, I want to be sensitive because it's like, yes, the Holocaust happened and these horrible things happened to Jews, but that doesn't necessarily have to do with what we're talking about when we're talking about Israel. Um, the other thing, right, so. the, the irony of like the Holocaust stuff is like, yes, the Holocaust was awful and it's good right. that we have all these, you know, um, all, all these moments that we try to dedicate to remembering yeah. the Holocaust. Like, yeah, that's great. But we kind of miss the point if we just keep doing the same stuff. You know, like the exactly. whole point of remembering the Holocaust should be we don't want anything like this to ever happen again. But exactly. we just use it to brush everything that is happening under the rug. It's like, that's not what we should be doing. We should be doing yeah, the exactly. And there's many instances in which, you know, really prominent um, Jewish figures have talked about how what Israel is due to Palestinians is, you know, somewhat similar to, you know, Nazism and things like that. Um, yeah. So, you know, I mean, just it's going like it's like Lebensraum, you know, in just in, instead of. Uh, you know, Germany expanding and removing ethnicities they don't like. It's just Israel yeah. doing it instead. It's the, like the exact yeah, same exactly. thing. Exactly, exactly. Um, and I think it's also important to focus really on like Israel as a state, right? And their authoritarian, authoritarian government and things like that. Yes, they are an exclusively Jewish state, but we're not talking about them because they're Jewish. We're talking about them because they're a country and a state and they should be sub subject to scrutiny just like every other state. You know, right. um, if there was a country full of Muslims like Saudi Arabia, I would also say that they, you know, are subject to scrutiny and I'm not being Islamophobic. Right. <laughs> it's the same type of thing. So what I wanted to say about that is, you know, I feel like a lot of their identity is um, created around this perceived threat from the outside. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that like when they're having elections and things like that for prime minister, they really want to like ratch up their their war rhetoric and their Palestinian rhetoric and their safety rhetoric and things like that. And I think that's really important to note to kind of understand Israel's influence on foreign policy in this region, um, because, you know, we all kind of know the Palestinians don't seem to be that big of a threat to Israel because they have like one of the most sophisticated militaries in the world and Palestinians have like homemade rockets. Um, so that kind of gets played like over it's like overplayed basically and so i think that's one of my biggest things and interpretations of like their perceived threats from other countries especially iran is you know they always have to have an enemy and that's why we you know have a manufactured enemy which is iran at all times and it really comes down to israel lobbying us and israel being very intricately involved in our foreign policy decisions and us you know, always doing Israel's bidding. I mean, so much of our Middle East policy is just doing Israel's bidding. Um, mm -hmm. It's really, really crazy. And I think a lot of that is built within and can't ever be removed from just the essence of the state of Israel because they need a perceived threat because they that's what their state was built on. And that's what their like nationhood is built on. And that's what ultimately unites the Jewish people because Jewish people, the Israelis are ultimately from all kinds of different countries, you know, they're all kind from different kinds of backgrounds um, and they needed something that made them Israeli, right? That's also why they brought back Hebrew <laughs> as a language, which was basically wasn't even a language um, for like hundreds of years. They like brought it back. Um, 
so that they could have a common language. Um, so I think that's just like an, a really interesting fact. And, you know, another reason that they're always needing different crises that are happening or wanting different enemies within the Middle East that aren't Palestinian is so that all the attention on Israel doesn't have to be on the Palestinian issue. And this is one of the ways that they secretly, you know, can continue to take territory and build legal settlements and things like that, which are all legal under international law because their focus, you know, our focus is on Israel and Iran, Israel developing or Iran developing a nuclear weapon or Hamas or not Hamas, Hezbollah and all these things happening in Syria and Israel and Syria, right? While all of that is going on now, they don't have any attention on them when they're building, you know, illegal settlements and, and continuing to terrorize Palestinians day in and day out. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of use the litmus test. If people, um, if they'll only talk about Saudi Arabia and they never mention Israel, you know, that's kind of sus to me. And then the yeah. reverse is also true. Like the, I mean, because there are some anti-Semites who do just talk about Israel because they're 100%. Jewish and yeah. they never bring up Saudi Arabia. And 100%. to me, they're both very similar, you know, and, and I'm personally an atheist, so I'm not Jewish or uh, Muslim. And I have criticisms of both religions. But at the end of the day, it's not really because of their religion. It's because Saudi no. Arabia is a Wahhabist, murderous uh monarchist you know <laughs> regime that exactly. murders journalists and also helped uh you know the september 11th attacks against us and the, you know that was released in the 28 pages uh and they're also huge hawks on iran you know just like israel has been so uh to me it's like if people are willing to call both of these out zionism and wahhabism and understand that we play a huge role in creating both of those ideologies and perpetrating them and that they both hold us hostage too. that, you know, Saudi Arabia has all these uh, strong ties to us because we took the dollar off the gold standard under Nixon and decided to make a commitment to protecting Saudi Arabia as long as OPEC promised to uh, price oil in dollars. And then, like you said, with Israel, like all the lobbying, um, blackmail, all sorts of things going on, like the, the the relationship we have with both of these countries is what causes most of the problems that we've had for yeah. decades. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, switching gears a little bit, um, you did a, a great video and an article about how the military um, actually infiltrates Hollywood quite a bit. And they help with production and they help with the messaging of a movie trying to create a very uh, sympathetic view of the military industrial complex. And you were talking about the latest Top Gun movie. I was wondering if you could dive into that a little bit. Yeah, this shit is crazy. I've been just more like getting learning more and more lately. And it's it's like it's very systemic, actually. It's a whole it's not like they just infiltrate sometimes or they're involved in this. No, this is an entire systemic thing. So um, I initially got interested. Yeah, because everyone was freaking out about Top Gun. And I don't know. I was just already suspicious from the get go because. It's unfortunate for me because I genuinely am obsessed with movies and TV shows. Like I really feel like I'm a big movie buff and like it's honestly a big part of my life is watching TV and movies. And I love like war movies and things like that. And they're so moving. And so kind of figuring all this out has been unfortunate, um, but it all makes sense. So yeah, uh, with Top Gun, um, Basically, how it works is the Department of Defense has an entire entertainment media office. So anytime that a production, a Hollywood production wants to be made and they want to use anything that has to do with the military or they're going to mention the military or they want to use any weapons of war, um, they have to go to this entertainment media office and they basically have to sign a contract. And the military leverages this, you know, leverages their access to all of the um, weapons and, you know, the planes and the pilots and the extras and everything that they have, right? They, it's their industry. They have everything that the produ producers want, right? So they leverage that so that, you know, they'll get control of the script and 
in exchange, the people that are creating the movie are going to get um, obviously all of the expertise and all of the help that they need, but also they're going to get like really low cost. Um, why can't I think of the word like stuff? <laughs> really low cost uh, production or weapons uh, and props. Like if they need shit. Yes, props. That's what okay. I'm thinking. Yeah. So really low cost props, right? Um, and so this happens with, I mean, this has happened with over 2,500 movies and that doesn't even include like just certain episodes of certain like, um, TV series and things like that. And it goes pretty deep. I mean, if you want to create a war film or something that has to do with the military and you have anything that is critical <laughs> to the military, um, or goes against, you know, their agenda or their own narrative that they want set, whether it has to do with like mental health issues or veteran suicide or um, sexual assaults or racism or war crimes, like literally anything that you can think of, they can just immediately say no to your script. So when you go and you say you want to use these props and your script doesn't fit what they want, they'll just say no. And so there's actually a lot of movies that haven't even been made because they can't afford to make it um, because the military said no to them. And a lot of people, a lot of producers will actually just go into when they're making their script, they'll just censor themselves because they know that their script is likely going to be denied if they don't do that. Um, that's crazy to me. Like that is just mind blowing to me that it's that systemic. Um and I have like, I wrote down some examples because it's it's really interesting, like I said, but with Top Gun specifically, um, with Top Gun 1, you know, they say in the Pentagon Papers that this movie was a complete rehabilitation of the military's image after the Vietnam War savaged it. Like those are their words in the Pentagon Papers. And that was wow. one of the main purposes behind the films. And they're really sneaky because they say like, you know, the military we want to be involved in films and Hollywood wants us to be involved in films to provide accuracy, right? So they can make an accurate film, but they genuinely do not care about accuracy because first of all, they make so many inaccurate films like Top Gun and they'll tell you themselves like Top Gun, you know, the way they like dive or the way they do like their dog fights or whatever. It is all extremely and completely inaccurate when it just comes to like combat and things like that. And so, um, yeah, I just think that's really interesting with, with Top Gun. So, um, and after Top Gun, you know, Navy recruits went up 500%. So it obviously has like a huge pull on recruiting. And I feel like that's kind of obvious. Um, but like, we know that for certain. And then they really wanted to create a second Top Gun at, right after the first Top Gun. But there was this scandal that happened in Las Vegas. It was called the Tailhook Scandal. And basically um, a bunch of servicemen like had huge like mass sexual assault um, charges and things like that by service women at this like conference. And it, apparently at that time, like in the eighties, was, I wasn't alive, but it was, it was a huge scandal. And so that's one of the reasons they didn't make a Top Gun 2 after that, because like in the reporting, like the internal reporting of why this happened, it was like quoted that it was like a top gun mentality or something like that. And so this is something that was like covered in the media. So that's actually like the main reason they didn't make a top gun right then. And that's why they waited so long, which is really interesting. Um, and then with top gun too, um, you know, for me, it's really important because like I said, like my brother's literally an air force pilot. I know this is a, like right. a Navy pilot, but I like know that top gun, like literally had an impact on him to want to do, you know, what he does. And thankfully he's going to fly cargo and not do anything else. I convinced him because he's locked in already. So, um, but with Top Gun, it, it's really annoying to me because, you know, they, they're able to portray this movie. It's one of like the first post-war movies, right? So, it's a movie about the military, but it's not a movie about war. And I just feel like that's so dangerous. And that's kind of really where we're heading with our military anyways, because we all we do know is proxy wars. Like it's yeah. really unpopular to put troops or boots on the ground. You know, that's just not like the way things go anymore. And so I feel like this type of propaganda and this type of entertainment is really dangerous because, 
you can show all these, you know, cool and fascinating things about the military without talking about like the military's purpose, which is obviously war. Um, and yeah, I wanted to share too, like there's, there's a lot of movies that have been really, really, um, uh, impacted by this. So like the CIA too, they're a little different than the Pentagon. They have like their entertainment media office, but they're actually really heavily involved in pre-production. So they actually help write the scripts, create the scripts. And there's not a lot of like documentation on them because a lot of it is happening like through emails and phone calls and stuff like that. Um, but like with Argo, for example, um, you know, this is all with an intent too. It's not like, oh, they're involved and we can just assume that they want to like take out these negative things from the films or whatever it is. Um, it literally says within their documentation and within their papers, and we know all this from Freedom Information Acts and stuff like that, that this is the purpose behind it, where you can see the script changes that they make, or that you can see, you know, what they want to take out of the script, or you can see what they want to replace that with. Um, it's really, really crazy. So with Argo, you know, they purposely wanted to leave out um, the fact that there was any other hostages left in, right, in Iran. They obviously didn't give any historical context to the Iran, um, you know, scan or Iran crisis and things like that. The hostage crisis about how we overthrew the dictator in the early 1950 or we overthrew the democratically elected president in the 1950s in order to install our pro-Western dictator, you know, and that's obviously what eventually led to the revolution in Iran. And they say this specifically that they want to leave these things out and they don't want them to be included. Um, there's a, there's a docu-series called Black Sunday. And um, it's about this mission or this thing that happened in Iraq, in the Iraq war called Black Sunday. And, um, it's really interesting because, you know, like I said before, they say that they want to be involved for accuracy and all these things, but they're literally the ones that create the lies within these shows. So with this yeah. docuseries called Black Sunday, um, they, there's like an, so there's a, sorry, I'm all over the place. There's a documentary called Theaters of War and you have to watch it. It's amazing. And they talk about this in there and they interview the veterans of this Black Sunday incident. And the veterans of this Black Sunday incident are the ones who are saying how inaccurate the docu-series, not just wow. a TV show, the docu-series is. And they did that on purpose. Um, and they like completely uh, misrepresent and misportray uh, one of the veterans from this thing that happened, this crisis that happened in Iraq, who was like paralyzed. And he became like a big anti-war voice. And he's like, um, a big protester of the Iraq war and things like that. They like make him into like this bad guy in the docu-series and it really pisses, <laughs> of course. Um, you know, his fellow combat people off. And then they have like, um, oh my gosh, there's like so much, just the entire like incident that happened is completely falsified, completely misportrayed. Um, they don't give any accurate background of like what the military did wrong. So basically in these TV shows and movies, anytime that the military like made a mistake, they're going to redirect it to only focus on like the partial good thing that the military did. Like with Black Hawk Down, for example, there was actually a movie that came before Black Hawk Down that was never made. That was all about, you know, what was actually happening in Somalia during the nineties and things like that. And how so much of it was our fault and, you know, whatever. And they didn't make it, but then they made Black Hawk Down and all they focused on was the rescue mission, right? But they didn't talk about any other broader issue with that whole Somalia incident, if you know what I'm saying. So like, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of craziness happening with these shows. And um, there's a lot of stuff like in Lone Survivor. I know that's a big one that a lot of people watch. You know, that scene where they capture the goat herder and then they're like, we should take a vote if, you know, we should like kill him yeah, or not. Yeah, yeah. And then the captain's like, um, no, go, we, yeah. we're not going to take a vote. We're not going to kill anyone. Here's what we're going to do. Literally, the opposite happened. So in his book, in the Lone Survivor's book, um, the captain is the one that said, like, we're going to kill them and bury them and let's let's take a vote. 
And the military took that out and completely changed the dialogue because they knew how bad that would make them look. And it's obviously a war crime. And so like, I don't know. I just, I think all this is super, super crazy. Um, there was a mm. lot of movies in the past about like Vietnam that either weren't made or were completely denied and then became like really expensive movies to make um, because of obviously all the horrible shit that went on in Vietnam. Um, right. So, so yeah. So to make a, like an anti-war Hollywood film, you need to have mm -hmm. a lot of money because the military is not no, going to help you. You have to buy all yeah. the props yourself and everything basically. Yeah. Yeah. So like Jarhead's an example of one that was denied, but was made. Um, 13 Days. Mm -hmm. it's, that's like old 90s. That was denied, but was made. Um, Oliver Stone's movies. He was actually in this Theaters of War documentary um, talking about all of this crazy stuff. Um, and his movies are about Vietnam. And then some movies that are heavily, heavily influenced are like, or that show 24, um, Argo, obviously, Black Hawk Down, all of like the Marvel shows, like Iron Man, for example. Iron Man was originally supposed to be like an like against the military industrial co complex and like the weapons manufacturers and things like right. that. And he was going to be an opponent to them, and then they literally switched to that for him to be like a champion of them. Um, so they genuinely changed like really vital parts of the script, and they have you know final say over the script. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think this is really crazy. And I posted that reel uh, and after I did my article just about the Top Gun stuff. Um, and I didn't even obviously get into this type of stuff uh, when I put that on Instagram. But I think it's really funny, like people's reactions to it, because a lot of people were saying like, well, of course, they're not going to like give you access to all of their stuff and then it just let you like badmouth them. I'm like, okay, but it's the... It's, the government is the military. Right. They're not like a private industry. Like yeah. that's it's literally supposed called, to be ours. <laughs> it's supposed to, that's what I said. I'm like, I yeah. literally pay for them. So why would I pay for them to propagandize me and like, and lie to me in a way that I don't even want to be lied to. Cause I feel like when people find this out, they're like, why do they do this? Like, this isn't even necessary. Like, just tell me how it is. Yeah. I can still like, love my brother who serves in the military and I can still like be pro-military even knowing you know that there's bad stuff that happens within it or whatever you know but they obviously don't want that because then it would create a population of people that are skeptical of wars and skeptical of the military and things like that but um yeah I just think that's so funny that that's people's reaction is that they have like the right to do this because they don't want to be bad mouth but that's not the job of the military right I'm fine if the military wants to give you know, accuracy points or wants to help out Hollywood films because I like good movies and, you know, whatever. Yeah. If they want to make a movie about war, that's okay. If they want to make a Top Gun movie that's super entertaining and unrealistic, that's totally fine. But I would just prefer if you just let the producers have, you know, creative freedom to right. write it however they want to write it. And whether they're going to include things about veteran suicide and all these things in it that are actually realistic, whether they include that or not, I don't really care. But the fact that the military is purposefully and intentionally saying, no, you're not going to include that, that's what pisses me off. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, this is this all hits kind of close to home. My sister's in the army. And the so in high school, um, well, like in middle school and high school and then right after high school, I, I was doing World War II reenacting. Um, I own lots of like World War II guns and stuff. I think it's a fascinating time period in history. And we also made World War II movies. If you guys want to YouTube, uh, Reed Coverdale, it's my other channel. It's, it's not the naturalist capitalist. It's just named Reed Coverdale. And I got a bunch of travel videos and then like World War II movies we made in high school and after high school. And they're totally unrealistic. And yeah. I mean, it, it's just uh, like there's this one series we made about this like this snow shovel that was a secret weapon that the Americans used against the Germans. Um, it's just totally ridiculous. But my sister, when she was like 14, 16, was in these movies that we made. And that is what eventually inspired her to join the military. <laughs> and it's like, I mean, it's just like a super, super dumbed down version of what you're talking about. But um, because what happened is she was like making these World War II movies with us. Mm 
and then she started watching Band of Brothers, Saving Private Ryan, and then like right. Lone Survivor. And then she just had this completely fantastic view of what the military was. And I I even took her out to breakfast once and I, I told her, I was like, look, you have this vision of, you know, landing on Normandy Beach and just like killing Nazis. And that's not what you're going to be doing. You're going to be blowing up a neighborhood in mm -hmm. uh, Syria or something to enrich Halliburton or, uh, you know, um, Raytheon or some banker or something like that's what you're going to be doing. You're going to be killing people that you don't even know who they are or why they're there for some special interest group. That's all you're going to be doing. Yeah. Um, but it really is amazing, like how much power propaganda has, because just even making World War II movies in your backyard can lead someone to joining the military. <laughs> and yeah. I'll never forgive myself for that. Like it was never I mean, even in high school. Uh, or or after, not high school so much, but after high school, I was a Rand Paul uh, 2016 supporter. You know, yeah. I was on I was libertarian. The idea that we shouldn't get involved in these interventions overseas. And we're just making these dumb movies for fun. And even that had the effect it did. So it is yeah, amazing. That's like, crazy, actually. Yeah. yeah. And especially American propaganda, because we don't know that we're being propagandized. We've literally think that we're not you know and that's i think another thing that's so big about these movies it's not like we're going into it knowing that they've been influenced by the military we're going into it thinking it's just entertainment and if there's any influence from the military it's the accuracy of it and so it's just it's really sneaky um and it's really disheartening and, and there's a lot of good that movies like this could do you know and in portraying the reality of, of all of these different subjects and wars and things like that. And first of all, it could educate people to know their history better because I'd rather, you know, watch a movie than read a book to learn my history. And they could really talk about accurate history. You know, it could obviously shine a light on all these other issues. And I think also with like my Top Gun article, people, you know, just thought I was like bashing the military. I was like, first of all, I didn't even say anything about the military. I just said, the government is propagandizing us and using movies as like a recruiting tool and they're doing it all with the purpose to deceive us like they're not just using it as a recruiting tool but they're doing it they're making this movie purposely deceitful to recruit me they're not just showing me the facts to recruit me and so i just think it's interesting that you think that something like that would be anti-military when in reality it's like Movies have the opportunity, Hollywood has the opportunity to shine the light on real issues that troops go through, you know, and to really talk about um, the hardships of it. And I don't know, I wonder how many people, like you said, like really join the military because of this and how many people wouldn't join if we really knew what was happening. And this is why it's so obvious to me that like the the DOD would absolutely have to be involved in Hollywood. Otherwise it would just be a train wreck for them because mm -hmm. they have a different type of power. It's like that private industry power to really show us truth and in an emotional way, right? Because movies invoke so much emotion that if mm -hmm. they're invoking the correct type of emotion, the real type of emotion that's necessary, there could be a lot of changes and, and differences in like our society as a whole because movies really really affect us as a culture and if the culture was you know shining the light on the real vietnam or shining the light on the real iraq or shining the light on the real israel like we would think about things so differently and that's why like this subject honestly i just started like learning about it like two months ago but i'm like really obsessed with it because i think it's really really important and same thing with my brother like um you know, I, I've been really, really grateful because he's very, 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 very smart, very smart. And um, he's been really receptive to kind of like my anti-war sentiments too. But it's obviously really difficult too because he, he already signed his life away when he was 18 and he went to an right. academy, you know, like that is like the top of the top. And um, there's so much incentive to be in the military as well, unfortunately, like going to an academy, you can get any job you want after you go to, like, especially at the Air Force Academy, like you can go anywhere, you can go to any graduate school. Um, but even for him being, you know, just in pilot training, thankfully has realized like what the military is about. And, you know, there's not a lot of room for dissent or there's not a lot of room for critical thinking. You just follow orders and do what you're told. And 
I feel like because he's so smart and introspective, he understands like there's something innately wrong with that. So I convinced him to fly cargo. Uh, he just called me the other day because he was like thinking about doing something with JSOC. And I was like, absolutely not. Those are the worst of the worst. Like that's worse than the CIA. So, um, but yeah, I, I just wonder uh, how much like, how much better things would have been if we would have grown up watching like real war movies. Cause even our parents like, we're really into movies like American Sniper and Lone Survivor and all these things. And that's shaped so much of their view. And that's why they really have wanted all of my brothers to join the military. And thankfully we're kind of getting away from that. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's super important. I'm glad you're bringing attention to all these things we talked about here. This is, uh, I mean, you've got a lot more followers than I do on Instagram and just a little <laughs> 30 second reel can really pull someone's attention in. Um, so I'm really glad you're doing all you're doing and I'm trying to bring more attention to you if I can. So, uh, yeah, where can people so keep up? Oh yeah, of course. No, we'll have to do it again. Um, where can people keep up with you? I've got your Instagram linked in the description. I know you write for based politics sometimes, uh, anywhere else you want people to watch you or is it mostly just Instagram? Honestly, no, like I'm on Twitter, Quindrigs one. Um, I run Scott Horton's Instagram. So follow Scott Horton. <laughs> at the Scott Horton show because yes. <laughs> um, he's uh, a thousand times better than me. So everyone should be following him on Instagram too. But yeah, honestly, everything I do is mostly on Instagram. Um, and then yeah, check out my articles at based-politics.com and that's it. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Quinn. Like I said, we'll do it again. Keep up the good work and everyone go follow her. Links are in the description down in guest links. Uh, I got the Instagram link right there. And uh, yeah, keep up the good work, Thank Quinn. You. Thanks.